Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business. I am your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business. And anyone who's listening to this show, which has been on literally decades, it's one of the longest continuously running shows of its kind, knows that uh, I talk about whatever I want to talk about. <laughs> but I strongly believe that uh, what happens in the geopolitical front, what happens in the national security front, has profound effects on business and really the most important business of living and of life. And so these conversations are vital, and there's no one I enjoy talking about national security issues more than my uh, guest this segment. He's a recurring guest on the program, General Jeffrey Schlozer. Easy for me to say, uh, General, uh, retired General. uh, You bring so much to every conversation. Um, I've loved I love talking national security. I also love talking about your unique perspective on leadership. But before we get into our topic today, I'd love for you to talk about your book, which I consider very important. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I wrote a book called Marathon War, Leadership and Combat in Afghanistan uh, on my experiences of leading 30,000 uh, troops uh, in Afghanistan in, in 2008 and 2009. It's really about leadership and chaos. It's a good book. I mean, a lot of business leaders years as an executive and it's a good primer for uh, how do you operate uh, and try to accomplish goals even when uh, the situation's chaotic. So thanks for allowing me to plug the book. I am ready to start talking, Kevin. Yeah, and your website, real quick. Oh, yeah, Jeff Schlosser. So J E F F S C H L O E S S E R dot com. And it will tell you all about the book. It also gives you my blog site. Uh, connects directly to that and, uh, and just some fun pictures, too. So thanks a lot, Kevin. Yeah, absolutely. Every time you're on, we talked about this during the break. I mean, it's like, what story? we talk about it's very difficult to narrow it down because there's always so much happening it seems like uh, geopolitics is pretty much driven by amateurs globally (laughs) so (laughs) they they create so much danger so much chaos so much pandemonium it's it's really quite incredible Uh, but you know we narrowed it down to a really broad topic still uh, but at least it's better than everything, which is NATO. There is all of a sudden, it seems to me, in the last month, a lot going on in the NATO front. We did a little laundry list, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name some of those, and I'm going to let you choose one to start off with, and let's see how much we get done. Uh, I could not help but notice uh, Donald Trump's bizarre warning to the entire uh, NATO alliance that, you know, those who aren't uh, paying like they should, which, by the way, there is no contractual requirement on an amount. I just want people to know that. Uh, there's a number called 2%, uh, 2% um, that, that we hear of budget, uh, but there is no contractual amount. I found that very alarming on so many different levels when he said, if you're not paying, you're going to be roadkill to whatever aggressor comes. I encourage the aggressors to come. Uh, that was a lot. And then you had Macron, who uh, I guess it has been a long time since he had the, the French had the Vietnam War experience. For some reason, that's fresher in our minds, you know. But he said, hey, we need military action. We need NATO military action. And I couldn't believe it, uh, but I, I, I was not surprised by the U.K. and uh, the United States response. But I was surprised by how quick 
their response was, nah, that, that's not going to happen. They said, we might need to put troops there, NATO troops, of course, there. Uh, you know, I, and I loved his passion, though. He really seemed to understand the gravitas of the situation and how doing nothing cannot really be a viable option. You, you finally got Hungary um, allowing for um, Sweden to be added to uh, NATO. And uh, there's so much in the backdrop, including uh, uh, Hungary's president's weird relationship, or I would even say obsession with Russia, that uh, I think played a role. Uh, some about these authoritarians that love Russia. I don't get it. <laughs> but, <laughs> be it our own in this country or be it around the world. So those are just a few that came to mind, and there's even more that you mentioned. You jump in with whatever caught your fancy. fancy. Yeah, well, well, you know, Kevin, all this is taking place, uh, you know, in the backdrop of that uh, we're beginning our third year here with uh, the war between, you know, from the Russian invasion into Ukraine. Third year as of the 24th of February. As you said, uh, you know, uh, in our own country, you know, some of the political leaders have some rather bizarre, you know, uh, uh, discussions about this early statements. I'm not sure that uh, we can put much, you know, faith that that's what would happen if they, in fact, uh, had the Trump, you know, the new Trump administration or something like that. I think there would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, sounder or not sounder, you know, comments or but I mean, I think it would probably change. What is worrisome, though, is, is that uh, at this point in time, you know, the support for Ukraine is foundering. I mean, basically inside the United States, we've been unable to uh, get through Congress a uh, Ukraine support package. And so the delivery of that critical ammunition and, and parts and pieces, uh, you know, uh, weapons of, you know, whether it's tanks and things like that has been halted, basically. And uh, and that's really a problem there. I mean, you know, Ukraine is fighting this war with their own soldiers. They're losing their own soldiers, their own citizens. What they need, though, is external support. We've been unable to provide that in the way of ammunition or anything else. NATO has said, you know, the other countries of NATO have said, well, they, they would step in and supply ammunition, but they have been very, very poor at actually doing what they said they were going to do. So when, you know, President Macron of France, which it's almost equally bizarre, if we all recall about two and a half years ago, he said he was going to be the guy that actually stopped uh, the invasion and went and flew out and met with Putin. He was on one side of this very long table, and uh, it was actually sort of a uh, very interesting moment. Looked kind of funny, to be honest with you. It looked like uh, he was being a puppet of of, of Putin, and uh, you know. And yet now it becomes a wartime president, and you know, kind of casually says, "Well, maybe we should consider you know putting combat troops from NATO into Ukraine." I think that that is you know is indicative of one. You know, there's the leadership in NATO needs to be uh, and, and you got to not only lead with, with words as you know in, in real wars words mean something but uh, real actions are so that do so as well and in this case you know NATO's got to get off its uh, kind of a uh, rear end and actually supply uh, the ammunition and the you know the uh, combat vehicles and things that uh, the country needs talk is one thing doing is another and, and you know I, I almost I'm worried that it's showing a weak NATO uh, to somebody like Putin, and uh, he'll take advantage of it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. He's you know again he's he's uh, very you know crazy as a crazy like a fox, isn't he? Uh, the oh, yeah. he's, he's uh, got this uh, intuitiveness about human behavior that uh, and, and people believe what he says. You know he he was asked. 
uh, you know, what would he prefer, a Biden administration, another Biden administration, or uh, another Trump administration? Well, you and I both know that. You know what the real answer is. You could talk to a middle schooler, and if they had even just a cursory look at the news, we all know that uh, he wants Trump in there. I mean, it, you know, it's so obvious. It, 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 it's like having a puppet, practically. And, uh, you know, but he says that kind of stuff. And I'm amazed how it's not really challenged by news analysts <laughs> when it seems yeah. so obvious. And uh, so, yeah, he, he knows how to read people. He knows how to read things. And, boy, I love what you said about words. You know, uh, in, I think of the U.K. and Winston Churchill during World War II. I think about the current Ukrainian president and uh, how he is maybe the single most important factor, his words, his actions, um, during these last couple of years, because what, what happened, you know, just as the Russian troops were pouring in, uh, President uh, Biden's calling him up and says, hey, we'll help you get out. You can come here. <laughs> He's like, yeah. no, my country's being invaded. You know, and uh, I think that, uh, I think that's so crucial. And uh, I, I really found the uh, statement about Macron pretty insightful, very insightful as well. Um, a lot of frustration there. And, and something that's really important that you and I talked about before is none of these things happen in a vacuum, right? There's all kinds of challenges and issues that each of these world leaders are going through that makes them interpret domestically, right? Uh, particularly the, those who are in democratically elected uh, governments that uh, play a huge impact in how they perceive things. None of this is happening in a vacuum. And, of course, Macron has always got tension going on uh, domestically, often criticized. Frankly, I'm in awe that he's still in office from everything I've read. And so there's this theater, right? As Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage. Boy, that's certainly true in geopolitics. Well, you know, most of these uh, presidents and prime ministers and, you know, autocrats, uh, and I, you know, I'm not saying which is which, but, uh, you know, uh, in many cases, they can enjoy taking the attention off the domestic programs uh, when they become wartime, you know, uh, leaders. Now, Zelensky, I think, is, I mean, he has been uh, incredibly inspirational. He is basically a new Winston Churchill in my mind, uh, at least for the Ukraine and, and, and also trying to draw this coalition of NATO and other countries to help support him. But when you look around, I mean, Macron is obviously is being, uh, you know, uh, uh, threatened uh, for the next election, which is in 27. I think, uh, you know, uh, the right uh, on, you know, is uh, Le Pen has actually got higher ratings than he does. Um, and, uh, and and the truth is, is I, you know, if you look, Putin's a wartime president, then Yahoo's obviously a wartime president, keeps him out of being indicted further. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, I think that President Biden had no intention of continuing to be a wartime president after withdrawing from Afghanistan. Uh, and yet he finds himself, uh, you know, U.S. Navy's defending, uh, you know, not only U.S. ships, but also uh, multiple ships inside the uh, Red Sea, uh, all the way out to sending more aid to uh, Israel you know, during a, a tough uh, war there, as well as trying to uh, work through the Ukraine. And those are just the three of the, you know, uh, you know, the larger conflicts that are going on. Wartime leadership does draw attention to what you do there. You've got to be inspirational. But as I said, uh, inspiring words count 
but uh, so do, uh, you know, things on the ground, you know, whether it's shipping items to it, you know, ammo, producing items, you know, things like that. Building the consensus inside your own country and your own, uh, you know, parliament and Congress, that's critical too. So got to be explained. All those wartime leaders have got to get uh, be able to do those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm trying to think the last time we have had the United States so heavily involved in so many different theaters at the same time. Yeah, that's a that's a great, you know, great question. I mean, one would say that during this war on terror, terrorism, as you know, I, you know, I helped to direct some small part or plan some small part of that as a director on, on wartime planning. Uh, we were involved globally, but it was very much smaller types of activities. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, uh, you know, several years later after we withdraw from Afghanistan, you had the Houthis, you know, which most folks regard as a terrorist uh, organization or tribal type of an organization. And they're attacking U.S. Navy ships in the Red Sea. And they're using, you know, uh, uh, ground to sea sh- uh, missiles. They're using very sophisticated, uh, you know, uh, cruise missiles, things of that nature that you just have to shake your head and say, this is changing warfare. You know, the first time that the U.S. Navy has to protect itself from a direct attack is by the Houthis. I mean, who would have thought, you know? So, yeah, uh, amazing times. Yeah, absolutely. And it, is, it, it really has shown you with the uh, improvements in te- technology, uh, the more we have, the more affordable they become. Um, it has really altered the playing field significantly. And I think the last three years has kind of given us a unique window into the future of warfare that the U.S. and other major powers weren't really prepared for. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we have to prepare for is is that uh, this belief that, you know, high technology has to require everything that is high technology in the, word, in the way of parts and pieces and chips and stuff like that. What we're finding out is, you know, the, the Iranians and the Russians and North Koreans and stuff like that are able to either produce them in-house so they get around our sanctions or they're raiding wash machines and all that kind of good stuff and getting the chips and pieces out of that and putting them in sophisticated weapons. Uh, it is, in a sense, uh, uh, outlandish, but it's working for them. And uh, it is the wave of the future. You know, uh, you know, high-tech warfare does not necessarily mean that uh, high-tech components have to be required. And, and therefore, the idea of sanctions may not be as powerful as what we thought it was. Yeah, absolutely. Always love talking to General Jeffrey, Jeffrey Schlozer. Uh, General, uh, getting near to wrap-up time. Um, final thoughts. I mean, we really basically unboxed it, but didn't really put anything on any shelves. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of hard. We might need a couple of hours to do that. But uh, well, I think- final thoughts, kind of, kind of some takeaways yeah. as you reflect on the situation. Well, as I reflect on the situation, you know, we we have been unable to supply ammunition and, uh, you know, more combat capability to Ukraine over the last several months because of problems inside of our Congress and the administration. If we don't in the next several months, I would predict that this will be the decisive year of the Russian invasion in Ukraine, and it won't be good. So I think a uh, decisive year, that's what I'd leave with our listeners as we go out uh, speaking vis-a-vis Russia, Ukraine, and uh, NATO and U.S. Yeah, a whole lot of xenophobia going on out there and a whole lot of stick your head in the sand. And we know it, and it's, it's huge in the United States, uh, but it's everywhere. It's global. People are running on that. Uh, as you mentioned, the Kwan's opponent uh, in the next election cycle, she, she promotes that uh, to the max. 
Um, and so very important uh, that it does recognize that we're entering into an era of isolationism that we had not seen since the period between World War One and World War Two, and we know what that led to. Yep, you're so right. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, history continues to repeat itself. All right, always love having you on. Thanks so much, General. Uh, Kevin, thanks for having me on the show. Always fun. I'm Kevin Price. You're listening to the nationally syndicated Price of Business. Stay tuned for more.